Okay, we've got a couple of hours left uh, in our time together. You know, we can talk on into the evening if anybody wants to, but uh, I'd be tired of me by now. In fact, I pretty much am. But I live with me, so I'm going to spend the night with me anyway. So <laughs> that's why Sarah enjoys when I travel, because uh, he talks all the time, actually. Anyway, um, where, where would you like to go? Is there any questions, thoughts? I mean, I've got plenty in mind here, but let's just stop for a minute and see if there's some things that we've already talked about or some things you want to process a little more than I've processed them. Anybody? Yeah, over here. The question here was about Paul's uh, statement of he buffeting his body and making it his slave. And how does that coincide with a life not focused on abstaining from the flesh? Yeah, in the Greek, that word uh, buffet is actually buffet. And uh, Paul buffeted his body, which is uh, easier to do. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Okay, that's not it. I was just kidding. <laughs> I don't know that I reconcile the two passages. I think it gets to some of the discussion we had earlier about the discipline in Hebrews 12 that Father does and discipline that we cooperate with him in. And I think what Paul's talking about, if it's consistent with his other use of it, we think of buffeting my body as he's out there resisting sin or something, which would be in conflict with Romans 8. But if him saying, you know, I don't want to run this race in vain and I don't want to have done, you know, just talked about the Jesus thing and never lived it. And I, I think that's what he's saying. There's a, there's a real intentionality to living this journey that's not by works, not by effort. But there is, there is a discipline that God brings into our life for that to become a reality. And so I think Paul, Paul's language for the most part about this, he doesn't define it in Corinthians where you're referring to what that means, that he buffets his body and makes it his slave. But what he is saying is I'm not... I'm not trading the journey of knowing God for the contentedness or happiness of my own self-indulgence. And I think that is a reality that comes in the journey. I don't think it, I don't think it comes backwards. I'm going to have more of God because I'm buffeting my body. But the more I know Father, the more of that life and discipline I want to enter into and enjoy and, and feast on the fruits of. And I think we all recognize the, even his language with Philippians about in, you know work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and the fear and trembling is not directed at God because the end of that verse is for it is God who is at work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. So it's not oh God I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling. What it means is we all recognize that there's a part of us that would rather live by self-indulgence and temporal happiness than really follow Father's life and purpose in us. Now. I think that's only true at the beginning of the journey, to be honest. I can't even imagine now the way Sarah and I have sorted this out in our lives. There's nothing the world has now that tempts me back. Um, So I I mean, I I don't still think I'm beyond a point of falling because I think that could still happen maybe. But I don't have this enduring struggle with the disciplining of my body to... But I have been through stages in that, stages in this journey, not defending my reputation when God asked me not to. That was definitely a chore, uh, not what I wanted to do. And like I said, I tried to do it four times, just had a wonderful brother jump in my way and say, you can if you want to, but I think you're making a mistake. So I think that's those times of something God has asked us to do and we're doing it and it hurts like crazy. That's probably what Paul's talking about. Don't give in to the temporal desire for happiness and miss the long-term fruit of whatever's going on here. I think it fits in that discipline, same kind of discipline passage. And, and that's really, I think, what gets to Jesus being the finisher of our faith. I had a brother who's heard me teach some of this for quite a while. He was a drill sergeant in the Marines. And he could never, he couldn't get grace. He could not figure out grace to save his life. It was performance performance. And he would tell me, he said, I hear what you're saying, but well, you know what? God has a will. He set it out there. He asked us to do it. And he's just all over this thing. And I'm going, how's it working for you? He said, well, it's not working yet, but I can find a way to make this work. <laughs> One day I was with that group. Uh, again, I'm with them quite a bit. It's a group of folks that I hang out with periodically out in California. And um, so I was with them again one day. He came in and he was, his face was euphoric. And for a Marine drill sergeant, this was a deal. I don't know, what happened to you? He said, I get it. I get it. I said, you get what? He said, the other night, I said, I knew you were coming. I'm thinking, ah, that stupid guy again with all that stupid gray stuff. And because uh, he said, you know, I know God cares that we get this stuff right and blah, blah, blah. And God's a God of righteousness and holiness and all that stuff. And 
He said, uh, he said, I really love woodworking. I love woodworking in the garage. I love making little knickknacks and things and frames and stuff that my wife really enjoys. And we had, we had a couple over for dinner the other night, and she was showing them the latest thing that I made that was sitting on the mantel. And they were all talking, oh, this is great. Said, oh, I love it so much. It was all stuff. And he said, I was sitting there realizing I don't enjoy the product. For me, it's not about the product. For him, it's the job of finishing it. He loved making it. He loved polishing it. He loved finishing it and staining it and sanding it and all the stuff to make that what it was. And he just felt like God whispered in his ear, don't you think I love the process? And that changed everything for him because it was still God has a purpose. God wants to get us to a place of holiness and righteousness and freedom. But see, his thought was God endures the process, can't wait to get to the product. His revelation was, Jesus could, could he, and he asked me the question, do you think Jesus could really enjoy the process of making you more His every day? And I'm thinking, He loves it, because He spends an awful lot of time doing it. Yeah, I think He does. That changes it for me. That just makes it all that much different. So that answer, what you're asking? Okay, anybody else? Next, we had a question off the getting it brochure. Uh, the third section of that is embracing freedom. One of the quotes there is borrowed from Anne Lamott. It said, unforgiveness is like drinking rat poison waiting for the rat to die. And so we had a question about how we deal with forgiveness, particularly when people have been incredibly hurtful towards us. Forgiveness is a huge part. Well, we totally misunderstand forgiveness. I think that even tries to make that point. Forgiveness in religion is basically denial. Let's pretend it never happened. You know, as far as the east is from the west, so far God's removed our sins from us and transgressions. And we really think that means that God doesn't remember things we've done or God forgets. And so forgive, if I really forgive you, then I'm not holding it against you in a way that uh, I'm, I, it will be like it never happened. That's how we understand forgiveness. Totally wrong. Forgiveness is I'm going to take my hands off your throat for what you've done to me. I'm going to let God deal with you. Forgiveness is not about you. It's about me. It's about me realizing, boy, for all the things that God's forgiven me of every day, I'm not going to hold anything against you. Now, does that reconcile the relationship? No, it doesn't. See, dysfunctionality is described. I like this definition of dysfunctionality. You go and answer your door some afternoon at 3 o'clock. There's another brother there in Christ who's got a baseball bat, and he hits you over the head with a baseball bat and then runs off. And and the 3.30 comes over and apologizes. saying, I'm sorry. I was just angry. I shouldn't hit you with a baseball bat. Will you forgive me? I say, yep, forgive you. Next day... the Rings at th- the bell rings at 3 o'clock, and I open the door. He's got another baseball bat. hits me in the head. Comes over at 3.30, wants to apologize. I have to forgive him. He rings the doorbell the next day at 3 o'clock. If I've forgiven him, I've really got to open the door because I don't hold it against him. And so I open the door and get hit with the baseball bat again. And that's why I think forgiveness is basically denial in the body of Christ. Forgiveness says, I'm not holding this against you, but if that teaches me something about you, I'm not answering the door at 3 o'clock. Spouses who say, if I forgive my spouse, I'm just going to keep living with an abusive husband or a, you know, some other uh, kind of problem with the spouse. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Forgiveness is a one-way street. I can forgive you for anything, and I don't live in the bondage of your bondage. If we're going to have a relationship that walks together past your failure... That's a process called reconciliation, and I will not have that process with you until we are both ready to own our failures... Go to Jesus together and let Jesus restore the friendship, which he does. Jesus restores wonderful things through reconciliation. But reconciliation is a bilateral process. So forgiveness is not, I mean, I I don't want to forgive them because they haven't said they're sorry yet. That's between them and God. I don't forgive them ultimately. I'm just not holding it. I'm taking my foot off their throat. And I'll let God deal with them. Does that make sense? It does. Especially when... If they do, they do. But if you don't recognize that what you're doing is hurtful to me, then we'll not have much of a relationship unless God has asked me to keep having it with you because out of that love, your hurt might be healed. See, that's why I think principles fail us here. Even the principle now, I was interviewed recently in Charisma Magazine on this house church thing and got in all kinds of trouble with people. Um, but I don't mind. I didn't even know it was coming, to be honest. Uh, guy, ad, guy, 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 a half an hour interview with you. What, what do you think's positive about the house church stuff? And I gave him that. And then what do you think's negative about it? And I gave him that. And then he only quoted the negative stuff, which is fine with me because that's okay with that. But anyway, um, man, I'm getting old. What was that about? Forgiveness and reconciliation. Yeah. Okay. Well, the person, the person coming back and hanging out at the house. 
Oh, got it. Thank you. Okay, you're you're basically you 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 were hurt and um, offended by something. You were hurt. Yep. Yep. I got it now. I got it. I got it. There we go. Well, see, I have a basic problem with finding our answer for church in a principle. Whether it's not I see, as some people call it, I don't, I don't like the term, or God's calling me to house church, because that's a step away from I'm doing what Jesus asked me to do. If Jesus asked me for the next six months to hang out around brothers and sisters at the First Baptist congregation of Moorpark, I'm going to do it because there's people there he wants me to love. When we start saying, well, there's a better way to do church, we should be, and so I'm going to live relationally. Even if I'm going to the First Baptist Club of Moorpark, I'm going to live among them relationally. Uh, I'm, going to love, I'm not going to sign on the dotted line. I'm not going to jump through all the hoops. I'm going to love there as long as I get to love. And when they ask me to get out of there because I'm a problem, I'll get out of there. But if God asked me to hang out in a house church thing with some brothers and sisters in Park for the next six, eight months, I'm going to do that too. So we, we, we use those kinds of things, and forgiveness is one of those ritual things that we kind of work through. No, if God asked me to hang out with you, you can be the most abusive, and I do. I have hung out with some of the most abusive people in the world, and our relationship is horribly abusive. I don't mean physically, but it's not dinging on me. I know they're treating me a certain way, but I'm not responding to it. So I just keep hanging out with them and loving them, and finally God shows them something, and they get free of it. Now, I don't mind doing that, but I don't do it as a matter of codependency. I can't get out of this. I'm going to hang out with you even though you're a jerk kind of a person. When I'm hanging out with somebody that I perceive to be abusive, I'm doing it very intentionally. I'm doing it as an act of obedience to Christ, and I'm hoping my love will win them out of that. And I won't do it forever. I'll do it as long as God tells me to do it. And when he says, don't do it anymore, I don't do it anymore. And, and when I say God tells me, there's... See, here's how I think we've really taught people not to trust God to lead us. When you meet somebody, even in your hometown or whatever, don't you have a... There's some people you meet where you feel like, man, I'd like to know them better. Yeah, and there's other people you meet, and you might have had a great time, you enjoy them, but you don't sense a real connection. And see, our understanding of church is, well, you must have a connection with everybody. No, I hang out with the people God puts on my heart, and they're on my heart because, man, I want to hang out with them. I have that sense that God wants me to. And, and I know it's God because it's not just people I would like from a fleshy, humanistic point of view. It's, sometimes it's very difficult people, but I'll go away, God, uh, you want me to hang out with them? I know you do. There's a drawing to the doing of it. And then there's a time when that feels over. And one of, the, one of the great joys of this journey, I think, is we've got it. Religion always focuses on rituals and callings. And I think the New Testament focuses on tasks. I think the New Testament is not, oh, you know what, we're called to be together. We're called to be a house. Let's commit ourselves for the next 30 years to live and die together. And sign covenants, as we talked about yesterday, and all that stuff. You know, it just doesn't work. People leave when they want to anyway. They get hurt and mad and leave. It doesn't matter if they got a covenant, not a covenant, signed it, didn't sign it. Just You know, it doesn't matter. When Paul and Barnabas come back from the first missionary journey, and one of the real awakenings to me, I was reading through Scripture, one of those verses that just grabbed my eyeballs. At, as I was, and I'd read it millions of times before. I'd never seen it. Paul and Barnabas come back to Antioch and gave testimony that they completed the work God gave them to do. I'm thinking, what Christian have I ever heard completed anything? Because God gives us callings, and He gives us assignments, and you start doing it, and you do it forever. Paul and Barnabas didn't go, hey, we're missionaries now. We're going to start the Paul and Barnabas Evangelistic Association, and we're going to go out on another trip just as soon as we raise enough money to go. It was like, we came back, we did what God asked, we're done. Now, a couple years later, He asked them to go again. And they couldn't even agree about going together again. Poor Barnabas, you know, it was over John Mark. I want to take him. I don't. That lousy, betraying, no good for nothing fool. And you go, Barnabas, well, he's the forgiver. He forgives. And Paul, he's bitter. He holds it. Again. God didn't have it for Paul to go with John Mark. It wasn't in his heart to. It was in Barnabas' heart to. The clarity of that was, I'm not asked you to go again together. Now I get, I get Barnabas and John Mark going out doing some wonderful things. And I've got Paul and Luke going out doing some fun stuff. And then Paul and Timothy. And then Paul and Silas. And you know, it just, it's amazing the way God does that. We turn it into, because we want to turn it into rituals, like Paul and Barnabas even going, oh, we should go out, we, have, we can't agree. So there's this horrible disagreement among them. And it says it there, violently disagreed. That doesn't sound like you're all seeking Jesus and being brothers. And oh, They were learning this too. And they saw it as a power deal. I don't want him to go. I don't want him to go. He betrayed us last time. I don't care. God forgives. You can imagine what that conversation's like. In the end, because they had such a sharp disagreement, I think if they would have been listening easy, better, 
I think they would have heard God, you know what, I think I'm supposed to take John Mark. And Paul would say, I don't think I am. Well, then who might God give you to go with? And let's pray for each other and go. But see, they, they didn't. They're still learning this stuff, too. And I think, you know, the average church in America splits every 6.7 years. You know that? And so, you know, God's multiplying things anyway, whether we want, it's usually over bitterness and hostility. and People hate each other for years, and they can't see each other in stores, and, which is horribly tragic. If we could just say, you know what, you feel free to do what God puts on you. And say, well, somebody's doing something stupid, and it's the wrong thing. Let them do it. God will show them. If I jump in every time and say, you know what, what you've got, it's not God. What they're basically learning to do is, I, I can't follow what's on my heart because I'm always wrong. Because I've told them they're wrong. It's, my, my friend from Australia calls it his ice cream theology. So we do ice cream totally wrong with kids. We give them a scoop of ice cream and they want more. And we say, nope, one's all you get because you get sick if you get it. And then you're the divine frustrator. He said, God, God gives us a scoop of ice cream. We'll say, ooh, I want more of that. He said, okay. Well, I want more of that. Okay. And finally, when you're puking your guts up, you're going, you know what? About one scoop of that's about all I need. <laughs> And then God's not the divine frustrator. He's just saying, yeah, well, one scoop will do it. Because you learn in life. We really do learn in life. And uh, so I do think God does that. You want more? Okay. You want more? Okay. You had enough? No, want more? Okay. Eventually you have enough. And you learn. And I think God's teaching us how to live this way. But yeah, I think forgiveness is a deal. That we're... And again, if I'm having difficult time forgiving somebody who's hurt me, Forgiveness is not an act of obedience. Because if it is, you're just acting. Did Jesus come for a generation of actors and actresses? I don't think he did. I don't think God wants you acting Christian. When I can't forgive you for what you've done to me, what do I do with it? Yeah, where else are you going to go? Okay, God, I want to kill that person. What do I not know about your forgiveness of me that if I knew it, I wouldn't be holding this against them? The fact that I'm holding it says there's something. That's the whole parable of the unforgiving slave. He gets forgiven. He goes out and doesn't forgive. And then he gets thrown back into prison. The point is, when you're really forgiven, you'll forgive. And when you don't forgiving, what you know is there's something about forgiveness that you don't know for you. See, when I was a good Pharisee, I thought God earned me. I really felt like, boy, God... You've got a great prize here. And I, I, you know, I can hide all my sins and exaggerate all yours. And I felt like, boy, God, God's really good to have me. He's just pleased to death. Now I wake up every morning very, I, I'm pretty real about where I still struggle, where I still have doubts, anxieties, temptations. See, I, it's not a morning I wake up now that I don't know what God overlooks in Wayne today to be in my life and to do good things. I know it. Every day I know it. So now it's, it's a lot easier overlooking stuff in other people's lives, especially the world. Because I know what he's overlooking in me. I got no doubts about that today. Uh, it's that standing around eternity going, didn't he save our butts over and over again from all the stupid things we were trying to do? Absolutely. So yeah, and, for, and then reconciliation is a two-way street where brothers just, okay, we've hurt each other. We've got to own each other's pain to get to reconciliation. Reconciliation, hey, look, I'll, let's just... Let bygones be bygones, and, you know, it's going to be a little more than that. Until you own each other's pain, even if you disagree about how it happened and what, but when you finally say, you know what, I know I hurt you, and you know when somebody's owned your pain and when they haven't. When they've owned it, it's over. Reconciliation is quick. Until then, it doesn't happen. Another hand? Or does that answer what you were asking? Were you going to say something else? Well, sure. no, okay. Like I didn't need an evaluation. I was just asking if it answered. Is it fair to say, like, you... you Next, I was asked about rituals like uh, praying for meals or meeting in certain places at certain times. And the question was, does our observance of rituals keep us back from this journey? Yeah, and I don't know that it keeps us back. I think ritual is a lousy substitute for relationship. But we don't know it's there. No, we don't. No, but I'm not. Yeah, Sarah and I pray over most meals, but I don't when my mom's there because it drives her nuts. She thinks we're going to all die of food poisoning if we don't say a little prayer right above the meal. So it's just fun to torture your mom a little bit. I probably wouldn't do it. <laughs> Love you, Mom. Love you. But she, yeah, she was really raised in this thing that there's this, you know, what it says is receive whatever God gives you with thanksgiving. So you can say a blessing and not be thankful, and you can be thankful and not say a blessing. Most meals, Sarah and I pray over. It's a wonderful time to focus on God together and pray, and we do. But yeah, I think, I think ritual is a lousy substitute for relationship. I do think our flesh craves rituals. So I do think it's something I always have my eye on for me. Yeah, I'm sorry, back here, you were trying to get on this wade, right?
Next, I was asked about a phrase that I've repeated in my own prayer life uh, in times of trouble, conflict, or worry. Uh, God, what is it about you I don't know that if I knew it, I would know how to walk this out with you? And they wanted me to flesh that out a bit more. Yeah, and I don't, I don't probably have a scriptural proof text for that. As close as I would get would be, you know, John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. So when I'm not living the way God wants me to live, my understanding of what Paul says through the whole book of Romans, through all of Galatians, is life flows out of relationship. So if I'm not experiencing that life in this circumstance, it's because I'm not experiencing it in Him. And everything comes from Him. So I'm going to go back to Him and saying, what is it I don't get? As a follow-up, I was asked then, if I'm not bearing fruit in certain situations, would it mean that I'm not connected to the vine? Yeah, I know what you're saying. I probably wouldn't say that connected to the vine thing, because that's not like you kind of fall off, fall on, depending on how well you're doing. I just mean this, this little branch is on that vine, but, you know, maybe only two little capillaries are sucking out of that vine. And when I notice that I'm not thriving in some area of my life spiritually or a relationship or situation, yeah, I'm going back to saying, okay, God, the answer's in the relationship with you somewhere. So what is it that I need to know? What is it I need to learn? And then I find when God connects those things, when, God, when I'm having trouble forgiving someone else, it's because I'm really dealing with some condemnation in my own life. When God sorts that out, it's very easy to release this other person. The fact that I have it, kind of alerts me to there's something between God and I we need to be talking about. And awareness. I think a big thing is awareness. So that everything, if I'm anxious, if I'm unforgiving, everything about my day. See, you see this pray without ceasing thing from Paul going, oh my gosh, that sounds exhausting. I mean, it's all I can do to get 15 minutes in the morning and not be bored with God and I'm supposed to pray without ceasing all day long. But I really think now it's just this ongoing conversation and everything mm-hmm. wrong in my life makes me aware of him. I'm going, God, what about this? What do we got to sort out here? And I don't get answers right there. God said, okay, here it is, Wayne. Boom, boom, boom. I just say, God, here it is. What do you want to say to me? And somewhere up the road, he'll make something clear to me about that. Sometimes it's six months down the road. But every time it comes up, I'm like, oh, we're still thinking about that, aren't we? Because what, what I've, what I've I, I guess what I've lost sense of is that I have any ability to make this life work in my own. Paul's Philippians 3 language. How much confidence does he put in the flesh? Zero. No, I put no confidence in the flesh. Now, religion teaches you to put confidence in the flesh, but we call flesh sin. We don't think of flesh as human effort. Religion defines flesh as human effort and really does. Yes, God helps those who help themselves. 72% of Americans believe that's in the Bible. And, and the reason they do is not because we're biblically illiterate. No, that expresses what Christianity teaches. So when you hear the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, you're going, got to be in the Bible because that's how we live it. It's Ben Franklin. It's not in the Bible. How much confidence does Paul have in the flesh? Zero. When I see something needs to change in my life, I'm sitting before God saying, what are you going to do about this? And how do I participate with you? Because I don't have, I don't, I, and I used to think I could change anything. If just enough willpower, enough discipline, I could change. And I don't have that. And I, I was a good, I want you to understand, I, when I say I'm a Pharisee, I was a good Pharisee. I wasn't a closet, you know, I had all this hidden, horrible stuff. I mean, I lived outwardly pretty righteous. I mean, I got it down. But it was dead on the inside. It was just death. So I, when I say, gosh, you know, I meet people that have the willpower of a, you know, a, a wilting daffodil. And, and they really understand they can't do anything, that they, you know, they have no confidence in the flesh. Me, I, I'm like, Paul, I could put an awful lot there. But God has just won me over. That's another point of, I can tell you things I tried to fix that I could make look fixed, but weren't fixed. Then when God does it, and you look back, like I was talking about my anger yesterday. I fought that anger thing for 40 years in various ways of having victory over it. Even I'm having victory out here, it's seething on the inside, but... Discipline. I'm pushing. I'm good enough. Now I know when God's touched it, it's not there. I'm in the same situations where I would explode. And I'm going, why am I not exploding? I'm inside. I'm laughing at my, in the middle of this conversation with someone going, okay, this is not me. I don't know who this guy is because I'd be taking this guy's head off. And I don't even feel like I want to. And I don't know. So, yeah, I do think God wins that in us. And so I'm going to let him win everything now. And I've seen more change in 10 years than I saw in the previous 40 by tons. I see more fruitfulness in my life. I see more engagement with the world. I, 
I see things now that I only dreamed about 20 years ago and was trying, fighting hard to get to and couldn't get there. So I'm very content with this. But I could be nuts, you know. I go home tomorrow. You don't have to listen to anything I say, but that's where I'm at. This journey. Here we had a lady comment on how fruitful her life has become since she kind of got out of the rituals of organized religion. And she said that's been surprising to her given the fact that people kept telling her, you're going to wither up and die if you don't stay here and live among us. And all your friends and family think you're going to die too. And they're all trying to get you back in because, you know, we've taught people you die out there. Why? Because Jesus can't be trusted with you. That's what religion teaches. Jesus can't be trusted. If you get out there, you know what? You're going to get into error because all error has come from individuals loving Father. All error has come in institutional movements. Uh, let's, let's get this straight. I want to say, where does error come from? It doesn't come from an individual. It comes from a guy building a machine and getting people to follow his perverted view of something. That's where error comes from. The person who loved... Now, do a lot of people do a lot of stupid things in Jesus' name that aren't Jesus? Absolutely. But because people abuse it, are we going to take it away from folks that can live in it? And what I love about this, when you, you live for three or four years outside that box and people are thinking you're drying up and blowing away and they're praying for you and trying to drag you back in, just keep living it. Because when you get about six, seven years out, they're going, okay, how come you didn't die? What's up with you? And that, it's amazing the fruitfulness you get with your own family and friend. The people that kicked me out of the church I planted are the people who at their worst moments call me on the phone and say, how are you doing this? We thought you were going to die. And now I'm dying. Okay, let's talk. And that's just amazing. I think that's really true. Just live the life. Live the freedom. If God, and don't live by not doing. If you're reacting to something, you're still owned by that something. If you're a reaction to institutional church, you know what? That is still shaping you in some way. Don't be a reaction to anything. Live relationally. Not even a reaction to religion, because that will take us down the wrong road. Just, Father, every morning, just... If you get this, that's all you need from the whole weekend. You can throw everything else out. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and ask God to be in my life and watch for Him during my day and follow whatever conviction I think He's putting on my heart. You do that, you'll be fine. You'll go through pain. Oh my gosh, you'll go through some dark places because there's some stuff in here God's going to rip out of you. You don't even know is there. But He's only going to do it when you're secure enough in His tenderness to hang in there with him, to not see the pain as God saying, I'm going to whoop you, boy, do you get this right? It's God saying, I'm going to love you through this. And I, so we were talking to somebody at the break time, talking about God quieting us with his love. And I, you know, I think of that, I think of the little kids when they're about you know, two-ish or so, and you try to pick up a kid that doesn't want to be picked up because they want to go run through the store, and you're trying to get them to go in the car. You pick up, fighting, screaming, and pushing away, and you just keep holding that kid close, close, close. I'm going to do this with my kids. Until all that fight is finally gone. And they just finally go, oh. that's what God quiet, that's, I'm going to hold you. I know you're fighting. I know you think I'm your evil guy and I'm the guy trying to hurt you. I'm going to keep holding you until, you until all that just gives up. And then that's when life and freedom happens. I've got a wonderful email here. I've been trying to figure out how to read it. I got it and I didn't have a place to print it out. So I, I, let me try and edit this as I read it to you. It's from a brother I've known for about 10 years. He lives in uh, the heartland of the U.S. somewhere. I'm not going to tell you where because this will be on tape. And He's grown, grew up in religious stuff, tried to get this journey, struggled with it. Um, trying to figure out where I want to pick up reading here. Um, and then he talks about in the last few years that God's really been, he said the experience with his daughter, he had, went through a big thing with his daughter, and he said it was like, a, she's a teenager, so that explains that, and he should have been the human sacrifice at 12. He wouldn't have had to go through this. But so the experience with my daughter was like a cork blowing off a champagne bottle that had been shaken for a long time. I'm very thankful that you were there to help me find my way through. He gave me a call at a critical moment. and It wasn't about me. It was really about God. But anyway, wouldn't have read that to you if I knew it was coming. There was no one in my life at that time who gave advice that resonated with my spirit like that. Uh, it was in those moments that Father pulled back the curtain in my life of the hidden control and manipulation that had masqueraded as a godly thing that was going to help set my family free. Mm-hmm. It's so amazing how that stuff hides in us. I'm so grateful to Father 
causing our past to cry. Oh, I'm not going to do that. And then that, that, that. Whatever. I wish I edited this before. Learning, and he talks about some of the recent podcasts that have helped him, The Quest for Significance, uh, One Woman's View, and The Man, Christ Jesus. He says, learning to live free of this stuff feels so good. I hear Brad, that's my podcast partner, in my head all the time, now saying things with a laugh of his like, now that's really good news, or that's really liberating. I couldn't agree more. And I was talking to another person the other day. Interesting, I, I wish I'd give you all the background on this. This gal he's mentioned, if you listen to the podcast, is Shelly, who's not her real name, but we called her Shelly who's at a very dark, broken place right now in her life, very angry. And her, this man and his wife are helping Shelly get through this stuff. And so he says, I couldn't agree more. I was talking to Shelly the other day. She had just listened to one of them and said, for the first time, it seems so simple. It is simple. We've just made it so complicated and impossible to live. I am sure the next several years with the girls growing up will have many more tense moments and at times feel like we're in a thick fog. But now more than ever, I'm learning to trust that Father knows what he is doing and none of it all comes as a surprise to him. We can, he can relate to our struggles, even crazy adolescence, and his love is the only thing that will get us through and transform us out of the pit we all too often find ourselves in. What an awesome journey. Uh, and then he quotes this from a book he's been reading. He says, Grace rarely ever makes sense to those looking in from the outside. And now he says, I know this from experience. And if you could know this family, this family, I was with them, gosh, a couple months ago, and it's just an amazing transition. There's so much tension. I mean, a few months ago, calling me, he's ready to kill, and my, my kids are not giving me respect. And he was like, I just said, brother, respect is not something that's given. You either have it or you don't. You can't ask your kids for respect. They don't respect you. Why? Because you're as angry at them as they are at you. They're only learning what you're doing. And all that stuff just opened doors into his heart that brought some neat freedom, and this journey does take some time. My goodness, I don't want people to think that, oh, man, just walk out of here and follow Jesus tomorrow. All will be good. All will be real. And some of the real will be getting to the deepest stuff where you live in your own control and manipulation. Part of it will be there. Part of it will be other things. Institutions are not made to incubate relationships. Institutions are designed to keep us from relationship. God made us in the garden for relationship. He made us to live by relationship. But in our fallenness and brokenness, we realize that relationships hurt. People abuse us. People lie to you. People gossip about you. Relationships hurt. Institutions are trying to create the rules that protect us. And I'm not talking about just Christian institutions. Economics, politics, religion is all about managing people in the absence of godly relationships where we love each other more than we, at least as much as we love ourselves. And because we don't do that, we create these systems that are substitutes for religion. So, do I thought community worked in any of my illusions of religion? I wouldn't say it ever worked well. I would say now, boy, when you watch a group around Dublin who have learned to live in Christ and learned to love each other, there is so much real community that just goes on in the course of life. It's just incredible. They're in and out of each other's homes. Um, and it's not like normal in Ireland, like it's not normal in the U.S. We're, we're just, you got to call ahead, make an appointment. You know, we just don't have a sense of being community. And, and partly that the institution provides a safe way for us to really... We come to this building. There are rules that protect us. If you get bad, I'll run and tell the pastor. They'll throw you out. So now it's a safe place for me again. And the theology's safe and everything's safe. And God's made us for the wild wonder of relationship. And when you have community with the brothers and sisters around where I live that I relate to with great regularity, man, there is so much community there. You've got an issue, problem, something comes up. There are people in your house, not the, assigned, not the visitation team assigned by the institution, but people who really give a rip about you, who really care, who are there. Man, when Sarah and I put out that we were moving, I'm thinking, gosh, we're just, we haven't lived this long in this area. And moving, to me, is the ultimate test of community. If you help somebody move or pour cement, I think that's just as big as it gets. And Sarah and I just put a little email saying, you know what, we're looking for some folks. If anybody's got some free time to help us move, uh, we're interested. We had 20 people show up at our house to move us. And so I went, now, gee, that's cool. This is the worst thing you can do. Um, so I do think community works with friendships. I knew in our own, even in our home group, people would say, I'm moving this Saturday. If any of you can come and help me, please do. And then no one came. <laughs> they called me up Saturday morning. No one's here. Oh, uh, okay, sorry. I don't know what to say about it. I know everybody, this person's at soccer with their kid. This person's there. This person, I understand all that, but, and I think when you're sick, you know, it says to call for the elders of the church. I, you know, I think what that means is, most of us, when we're sick, we hope people figure it out and come over and help us. When I need something from you, I'm going to call you and say, Scott, gosh, Sarah's back is bad. And 
we're going to put some together people to pray tonight. Could you come join us? And if you say, no, I can't. I've got this work deal. You know what? That's fine. I've got some others I'm going to call. It's not, well, stupid guy called you, man. Community, you committed? Get your tail over here. It's, see, I think the freedom of living in community. See, the community in a religious context is always based on expectations. I have expectations of you. And when you disappoint those, then we're all upset, and we all try to fix a new rule, so we upset people. Really, God's kind of community is, it's not need-based. I don't need you. I don't need another human being on the planet, brother or sister. I think that's, the community starts there. We really say, oh gosh, no we do. The body's not complete without the whole body. No, God's complete without the body. And God is who I have. So do I need anybody? No. Does God give me other brothers and sisters to be part of my life in wonderful ways? Yes, He does. I like the way somebody said it on, on, a, on a website I have one time. They said, you know, we got to get over the idea that community is mandatory. It's irresistible. And real community is. Religious fellowship has got to be obligated or people won't go. It's boring, it hurts, and it doesn't help. Real community between brothers and sisters who are getting this journey and who share it. I crawl off planes all over the world with people I only met online and I have no idea what I'm in for. And within 15, 20 minutes, I know if I've connected with a brother or sister on this journey. And man, we don't have to work at fellowship. We don't get home and say, okay, what are we going to do? And now we're going to... It's just blah, 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 yakking the entire weekend. I get on a plane Monday and fly away, and I feel like I'm being ripped away from best friends, and I was just there a weekend. I've got people like that all over the world. Because community is not a chore. It's a gift. And when God gives you community with brothers, for a while, God doesn't give. And I, I know it drives people nuts. I think for a while, because religion is based on, I'm trying to get from you what I'm not getting from God. Now, there's a place you want to start meeting with. You know, I'm going to get, so i got expectations. We need to be committed to this. When you disappoint me, I'm all over your face. And we have all these encounter meetings about how we're failing each other. And, oh, we're going to try harder and go, oh, God forgive us, and all that frightful stuff. Community doesn't begin until you're only looking to Father for every need that you have. He will meet it. Will He often use others in the body? He will often use others in the body, but not necessarily the ones you choose. Oh, God, I want Scott in on this. I don't want Scott in on this. I want Steve in on this, or Bill in on this. The Holy Spirit distributes gifts among the body as He desires for the common good. That doesn't sound like they get put where I want them. Jesus building His body together pretty much sounds to me like the gift I need is going to be in the hands of the brother I'm least likely to get it from. Because God's going to want to heal the relationship at the same time the gift is being transferred. So... If it's all in God, then it's, okay, God, how do you want to meet this? And, how do you, and if that dependence isn't there, so I think some people, they spill out of religion. They're looking for another expression of church life to be their God because that's what they're used to religion being. They can't find it. They're incredibly frustrated. And I just say to them all the time, God will give you community when he's ready. Not when you qualify for it. My gosh, I'm not talking that kind of language. God will give you community when he's ready until he does what he wants you to know is that there are things about him. He wants you all to himself for a while. So you'll get this right. Then community flows out of this. Because now all my dependence is in him. I, when I'm with you, I'm not hooked to getting things from you. You may be a great blessing. You may bring great wisdom into my life. You might open doors to things I'm not seeing. But I, I'm not getting with you for that reason. I'm getting with you just to share the life that we're experiencing together. Does that make sense? This is what makes community, I think, thrive for me. Powerful stuff. And it's irresistible. I tell you, brothers and sisters, even a few couples at home start talking about getting together on a Friday night. It, can we come too? It, it travels fast. It's not, oh boy, we have to come. Can we come too? Uh, we want to be there. We'll see what's going on. And communities like that. But it's, uh, there were years where we didn't have any of that. We didn't know anybody. We moved to Oxnard. We didn't know a soul we moved there. And uh, we just said, God, you're going to have to connect us to the body. I'm just trusting you to do it. And uh, over time, yeah, we know so many people, it's time to move again. But, uh, <laughs> And we just did. We moved eight months ago. Uh, so anyway. Yo. Here someone wanted to know what I thought about spiritual warfare, particularly in the kind of intercession, prayer walking, going to high places and interceding uh, against principalities and powers uh, in a given region. And uh, so we took a look at that. Okay. Yeah, I'm probably, I'm probably not a good guy to ask. <laughs> Yeah, most of my touches with spiritual warfare 
folks, actually scares the daylights out of me. Not, not because... Not, yeah, not because I don't believe in spiritual forces. I've involved a lot of people getting cast out demons and praying for things, intercessory, that have some impact. But most of what I've seen is, like most anything else, it becomes a ritual in which people find their life in intercession and prayer walks and rebuking principalities and powers. And I, I think real spiritual warfare, honestly, I mean, if we've got a demon-possessed person or something, we're liberating them, great, I'm in. If we're going to pray for some spirit, ruling spirit over an area to be destroyed, I don't think we have the biblical background for that. I really don't. Does, are there principalities in power? Yep, we're told about that. Um, Daniel's often quote his deal. He wasn't doing spiritual warfare. He was repenting. He's saying, oh, God, we're sorry for our sins. Come rescue us. Michael was doing some fighting. Um, so, I, I, again, I would come back to do whatever God's asked you to do. Just make sure it's not become more important than him and I don't I wouldn't sense that from you but I was in a deal lately I didn't even know it was a group of prayer warriors and then when I got there I'm telling you I wanted to run for the highest hills because they they did two days of stuff that I, I, I would walk out and I could be wrong because I don't have all the insight and everything for sure but I walked out and just said talk about spiritually fruitless talk about wasting two days with people that are you know, demanding all homosexuality in California stop by praying for this and going to the governor's original prayer mansion and praying for that and I'm just going you know what, if I had any hope that it was fruitful, I'd be in on it, but I just don't, that kind of stuff. That doesn't mean God doesn't at times ask us to do it, but even in Scripture it would be incredibly rare to take on a principality or power as an act of obedience to Christ. It wouldn't be a ritual we'd do in every town. Let's go to a high place. Let's, so that's where I'm at with it. And I'm probably jaded and cynical and going to hell, but, you know, pray for me. <laughs> okay. Let me tell you where I think I'd want to head. Um, and there'll be more to talk about, I'm sure. What I'm really convinced of that God's doing in our day. Let me pick up one other thing I left out yesterday. I, I want to get back to this. I think this is so cool. Remember we talking about Jesus' older brother and Jesus' humanity alongside his divinity? You remember that? Yeah. Some of you are nodding. You weren't even here yesterday, so I don't know what that means. But anyway, uh, maybe you were filled in on it somehow. But anyway, okay, you remember that? <laughs> Scripture I left out I wanted to give you with that is in, is in Timothy where Paul says there is one mediator between God and man. And who is it? Yeah, it's not Christ Jesus, Lord of Lords. and It's the man, Christ Jesus. And I, I think it just comes back to this lovely sense of his humanity, our older brother who's got his arm on our shoulder saying, come on, I'm going to teach you how to live this All this life we're talking about is what he teaches us to do. Does he often use brothers and sisters to help in the process? Often. And joyously so. I don't mind learning from you what God's taught you that'll help me even if I don't have to go through the lesson myself and get it directly. I'm okay with that. Absolutely okay. Uh, at the same time, I want to keep growing in my relationship as well and never let you be the substitute for it. There's been a lot of talk in the last couple of years on, in the national Christian magazines about people leaving more traditional congregational forms and house church is kind of the focus of that or more relational expressions. And some of the language that has emerged from people reacting to that has surprised me. Even people who are outside of a traditional religious structure, but they're fastly building their own outside uh, and calling it something else. But one of the things I keep saying is, how will the body of Christ ever be effective if we're not all under some leader that God gives that's coordinating our efforts locally or nationally or internationally to make an effective inroad for the kingdom of God. And I'm, I'm surprised that that keeps coming up, to be honest. I think what Scripture makes incredibly clear is that Jesus wants to be the head of the church, that He is the head of the church, that He is the only head of the church. Mm -hmm. I think the passion of Ezekiel 34, I'm going to get rid of the shepherds, the bad shepherds, and what, give you good shepherds? No. I will be your shepherd, and I will lead them to safe pasture, and they'll never be afraid again. I think what God's doing in our day is stirring men and women to come and live deeply in who He is, be responsive to Him daily, like I just described to you, every day doing what God puts on their heart to do. And we think, well, gosh, that'd be pretty weak in terms of all that needs to happen to change culture, change the world. Uh, Thomas Friedman, a commentator for the New York Times, I know that's evil, in any case, he wrote a book a while back called The Lexus and the Olive Tree. The point of The Lexus and the Olive Tree is 
that book was that in the, this is like 10 years ago, I think, there was a major shift. The Internet brought a major shift in international politics, taking the power away from the elected leaders or even dictatorial leaders of any nation state, that the power of our culture now resides in the hands of day traders on the Internet. The premise is this, and I think he's right. I wouldn't be sharing with him if I think he's right. He said, it doesn't matter now if you elect a Democrat or Republican in here or conservative or liberal in England. That politician has to create the kind of financial environment that will draw what Thomas Friedman called the electronic herd. It's this unconnected, uncoordinated group of people who wake up every morning and move money around the world to where they think they'll make the most money out of it. No one's coordinating that, but at the end of the day, that herd can be identified as having moved toward this economy because it looks good or moved when Indonesia tried to manipulate their economy a few years ago. All those people moved all their money out of Indonesia and Indonesia's economy collapsed. Remember that? What caused that? It was people trading on the internet. It was investors and not, not just internet traders but also the, the major market people in New York and London and other huge financial centers. And I thought this was fascinating. As I read the book, I'm going to, see what's fascinating about this is the power of a lot of individuals acting in their own self-effort now have more control over what our economy is going to look like. Because whether it's Clinton, whether it's Bush, whether it's another Clinton down the road or McCain, they, their choice in policy is not that broad. If they do things that offends the herd, the herd's running off to China to invest or Russia to invest, or anywhere else. So they're constricted to create this environment that allows people to feel free to invest and have confidence to invest here. The reason I told you all that is not because I'm going to do an investment seminar. I'm not. I think that reflects a greater reality that the church is. Imagine millions of people every day on this planet waking up, not acting in their economic self-interest, acting in the interest of the king because God's taught them how to live without them at the center of their lives. And they wake up every day to live in what Jesus asks them to do. And when millions of people simply do that, what I would call the submitted flock rather than the electronic herd, it's not people acting in self-interest, it's people acting in self-denial and in the interest of the king. Can you imagine how our community would be shaped? We keep thinking we need a coordinated outreach in Harrisburg to, and we do stadium events and we try and draw the world and the world's not coming. But you know, I always say to people, they were trying to get them into church and into buildings, say this, look, we might do a big evangelistic thing here and get 12 worldly people to show up to a Sunday morning event. Maybe. And they'd be half nuts if they did. But every day, how many people, how many secular folks will all of us in this room be near in the next week? How many? <laughs> a lot more than 12. Yeah. And I'm going to be going through airports, sitting in airplane seats next to people I have no idea who they're going to be. I, you know, that's just the next day for me. You, where you work, where you live, who you might pass in a store. Our freedom to live as God's kids in the earth. And that's what God's doing. I want to teach you to live free. Now, we should all do this this week. This is now the new expectation. You will go out and obey Jesus tomorrow. Forget it. You're not that bright. I'm not that bright. But what if we lived free enough? Let God teach us to live free. This whole, we we're talking about this movie book thing I'm working on. You can't believe the people God's related me to in the last 20 years of my life that are now part of me helping bring some people together to, make, to get a book into print. Not one I wrote, one a friend wrote and make a movie out of this book that I think it makes the most incredible presentation of God to a broken world I've ever read. I'm horribly excited about this, and I realize that every relationship, not every, a lot of relationships God's giving me may be part of this coming together, and we're not even sure who that all involves yet. But it amazes me, as I sit here knowing the number of people we are in touch with um, at this moment, I just go, God, individual people doing what you've asked them to do, puts, and then as they connect with each other, it puts that whole two degrees of, that six degrees of separation game they play with Kevin Bacon. Yeah. I had no idea getting in this process. I am one degree removed, two degrees removed from Oprah Winfrey. I know a guy who knows a guy. 
who's going to put this manuscript in front of her face because the guy who wrote it really feels like she's one of the actors in the deal. I don't know if she is yet. We'll find out. I'm, I was meeting with a man yesterday who's, not yesterday, four or five days ago before I came here, who produced the last five Mel Gibson movies, including The Passion. We were pitching the story to him, talking to him. I just, I had no idea I knew these people, or I knew people who know these people. Uh, Lindsay's got a brother we hope to talk to. I don't know if he's involved or not, but the director. I don't know. We'll talk to him. We'll see. Uh, if, if, that, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But to me, I just sit back and say, wow, what God's connected us to, the connections you have that you don't even know yet, when God's ready to call them into play, millions of people the world over living in the freedom of relationship and sharing community as brothers and sisters without the bondage of religion, going to touch a world and our local communities in ways we could never envision by all the program things we've tried to do to reach them. Because just like that woman at the well, Jesus spends an afternoon with this poor woman and a whole town gets touched. Now, if Jesus goes downtown Samaria and throwing a revival that afternoon, is she coming? She's not coming, is she? One conversation at a well, a life is changed, a family is changed, they drag all their people down. I see that happen now. And people, I, you touch someone in the world and God really makes himself known to them. What they're saying is, can you come over? My family would like to meet you. Yeah, I'll come over. Will you be our pastor? No, no, and no. I'll hang out with you as often as God asks me to. But the most important thing is you're going to learn to follow him. Does that make sense? Thank you.